come to the last fifth point, the P in the acronym TULIP of our Calvinism series. If you have no idea what I mean by Calvinism, uh, well, the difference is either you say, I gave my life to Christ, or God saved me. If you're in the second category, you're a Calvinist because you believe God saved me. If you're in the first one, you're still welcome, but we're going to fix you. And so we've been looking at, basically, in the big question, why ultimately am I a Christian? Why ultimately is anybody a Christian? And how do we get saved? This is the study of soteriology, uh, the study of salvation. And what we've been seeing is through and through, from the beginning to the end, God has been very clear in Scripture. And this was widely known and widely believed by the majority of Christian churches uh, just a just hundred something years ago, really, that God ultimately is the one who chooses us for salvation for himself, saves us through the blood of Jesus by himself, and keeps us to the end. So that at the end of time, when there are some in hell and many in heaven, what we will be able to say is, those who have gone off to judgment go there because of their own sin, their own choices, and their own desires. God left them in that state. And yet those who have gone off to heaven to be in eternal bliss and blessedness go there because God, despite them, saved them, gave them grace, turned their heart of stone into heart of flesh, died for them, bled for them, rose them to spiritual life and kept them to the end. It is, as Charles Spurgeon says, this is a salvation, all of grace. And so we've called our, uh, our series a theology of grace. <clears throat> I'm going to give you a definition because each week we, we start with a, a simple definition of the topic that we're covering. So far we've done total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, uh, irresistible grace last week. And this week we come to perseverance of the saints. Now by perseverance of the saints we mean that all of God's elect having been died for and purchased by Christ and effectually called and joined to Christ by faith, will never fully or finally walk or fall away from Christ so as to undo their salvation, but will all their life persevere by faith in Christ and be eternally saved. So we'll pull that apart and we'll go into much more details, but that's what we mean by perseverance of the saints, is that, is that when you are truly saved by God's Spirit, truly brought to life, truly united to Jesus Christ, you are united and saved and recreated in such a way that it can never be undone. That's what we're going to be looking at tonight. So to start out, we're going to go to Romans 8, verse 30. We've been in this chapter a lot as the series has gone because it contains a real diamond in the mine of Scripture. This diamond uh, of, that, that shows to us the golden chain of redemption in Romans 8 and verse 30. It says this, And those whom He, that is God, those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we looked last, uh, well, in, in previous weeks, at that there really is a group of people called the predestined or the elect, the chosen ones, Jesus' sheep, uh, uh, those who belong to him, the bride of Christ, whatever you want to call it. There is a group of people called the elect that Jesus has been given from before the foundations of the earth. The, the father gave to the son a future bride and his job was to go and redeem her, wash her with the water and the word and secure her to eternity. That's what he did. That's the covenant of redemption that we've referred to a few times. The intra-Trinitarian promise and covenant of oaths before the foundations of the world. So, so that's what he means by the predestined. Those individuals who were chosen for salvation, he also called. Now when we talk of the call, that's what we were talking about last week. That, that God does, it's not just the external vocal call that I give to everybody who hears my voice when I'm preaching, repent and believe in Jesus. Uh, I give the verbal, vocal, outward call. But, but what, what he means here is the call is the internal, effectual call of God's Holy Spirit. The same kind of call as when God says, let there be light, the light appears because it is a creating omnipotent call, like a divine summons to come to his throne. Every single soul to whom God speaks that call does actually and effectually come to Christ. 
So that's the predestined, there is somebody is chosen. All of the predestined hear the, the, the call through the preaching of the gospel. The Spirit awakens their heart. And this is what we saw, that all those he called, he justified. So that can't be speaking of everyone who hears the human call, because many will hear and not be justified. And yet in this kind of call, all who hear that call are justified. They come into a state of grace. They're forgiven their sins, declared righteous in Christ. And then in tonight's, we see the next section says, and those whom he justified, that is declared righteous in Christ, on the basis of his righteousness, all those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorification here is, is meaning that future time that, that he's spoken of previously in Romans 8 and, and will again later in the, in the book, that he means the glorification of the sons of God is that time when, when our, not when we die and our souls go to heaven, not when, not when we, we get to meet our friends and family up there. That's not glorification. It's glorious. It's not glorification. God takes us from glory to glory. Yes, your salvation now is glorious and you're awakened and it's, it's amazing, but it's not the fullness of the glory. This is what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says at that time of glorification, the whole world will be renovated. We will be rejoined to human, unfallen, perfected, glorified bodies and Christ, sorry, God will be all in all. That, that's what he said. So the whole world will be redeemed back to its original state before the fall and then renovated even further into full glory. And he's saying that every single person who hears the gospel and believes by that effectual call and is justified will be glorified. So that we see here what they call the golden chain of redemption. If, if you break any one of these links in this chain of the predestining, of the effectual calling, of the justifying, or of the glorification, if you break any one of those, no one is saved but they are unbreakable links for it is a golden chain. This is not stuff that, that is done by humans. It's not saying those who believed, this happens to them. Those who acted, this happens. Not those who free will chose this. It's not saying that. It's all about God in this verse. He did the predestining. He did the calling. He did the justifying. He did the glorifying. He who did not fail to do the prior will not fail to do the latter. Therefore, every, what he's saying here is that every, every person who is in that predestined group, so back, look at verse 30, the group of people at the beginning of the verse is the same group of people ending the verse. Steve Lawson loves to say, the school of Christ has zero dropouts. All those that you start with in eternity past when God elects and predestines is the same group that he carries through time, through salvation, through sanctification, on to glorification. The same group is predestined, called, justified, and glorified. That is God's salvation. That is this persevering nature. And of course, we don't mean by any of this that there is not necessary means along the way. Of course, at every point, and we've spoken about this at each, each night, there is still our human side of the coin. Just, just like when we're saying uh, perseverance, that all those who are justified will be glorified, we don't mean that, that what, what some say, Arminian Southern Baptists often say, they use a different phrase where they'll say, once saved, always saved. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe that's what you think of when you hear of perseverance of the saints. They are not the same thing. One is horribly erroneous, and one is the true gospel of the scriptures. When they say, once saved, always saved, what they mean is, as long as you had a moment where you trusted Jesus, you had a, had a youth ministry salvation feeling, you went on a camp, you, 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 had, you watched a revival meeting on YouTube, something like that, as long as you had a moment when you believed, no matter what happens to you in life, whether you walk like a Christian or you walk like a devil, whether you keep on trusting him or you become an atheist next week, so free and full is the gospel that that doesn't matter. As long as you had that faith moment, you're always saved for good. Like punch your ticket, doesn't matter where it goes, it's in the system, God will make sure you get through the gates. That is not the doctrine at all. Rather, perseverance of the saints means that all those, and, and this is why we'll go back to the definition that I started with, all those who have believed will never fully or finally walk away from Christ so as to undo their salvation, but will all their life persevere by faith in Christ. So that we actually believe the Christian has to put in effort 
If the Spirit is in you and you are regenerate, you will press in. You will repent. You will confess. You will walk by the Spirit. That's the promise of Romans 8. Just like every other stage other than predestined, every other stage had other means with it as well. Those whom he called, that is the effectual, those who he brought to life, he did so through the human preaching of the gospel and the human hearing of that preaching. And those whom he justified, well, he justified, but he, he also gave you a faith which you placed in Christ and then God justified you. So, of course, there's still means all along this path. Though God is sovereign, he ordains that he uses certain means to achieve his predestined purposes. That's what we see here tonight. And I love that once you really get a taste of this doctrine, you start realizing that it is not just a, just a separated, isolated doctrine. It's not just as if you can, you can turn to one page in your book and read about perseverance and then at all the other times it's, sort of, it's out of your mind. When you get what this perseverance of the saints really means, you realize that it goes all the way down to the roots of the gospel. Such that, so it's not just this doctrine that, is, that perseverance touches, but it touches every element of what we believe about God in the gospel of Christ is that it's all a persevering reality. That, that we who have been loved by the grace of God, it's a persevering grace. The nature of the atonement is this eternal overarching nature of the atonement. It's the nature of election is the, uh, the nature of our union with Christ, the nature of justification, the nature of propitiation when God was satisfied with all of his wrath placated, the nature of our faith. What you realize is that God's perseverance is, in, is sown in and embedded through all of these things. When God did any one of those things he did it with eternity in mind none of those things are just a moment that he did something they're all eternal realities that that secures the soul and gives assurance in God's faithfulness God always acts with the eternity in mind everything that God does by his promise is an eternal reality without an expiry date so this is why tonight has been called uh, the, the series has been called A Theology of Grace. Everything about the grace of God in the series of Tulip and Calvinism is a persevering grace of God. It's an overcoming grace of God. You were totally depraved. God graciously overcame that in a persevering way. He won't let you fall again. His election was a, was a gracious election that would overpower your own will and destruction. His, his atonement was a gracious atonement that would surely and definitely purchase for himself his bride, the ones that he desired to have. Uh, irresistible grace means that it's a, it's a grace that overcomes even your will and in fact gifts you a new will, a new heart, a new nature so that you're never the same again and, and therefore perseverance is that grace which remains with you, stays in you and carries you on to the end. So we're going to look at a few different angles of this tonight. Of course, we could spend the whole night clarifying and, and making conditions and saying, well, Jesus keeps us, but you better, you better stay on your path and you need to make sure that you're believing. And, and that's true. I've said that. It's absolutely the case. And we'll just be saying that every week when we go through the book of James starting next week. Don't worry. We'll get there. But tonight, I want to just take all of the emphasis, all of our view, and place it fully and squarely on the Lord Jesus. And say the reason that we persevere, the reason that all the saints who are saved will be saved to the end is because Jesus owns you, because Jesus defends you, and because Jesus prays for you. To question our perseverance is to question Jesus. It's eternal because he's made eternal, unchangeable promises. So let's start with John chapter 6. Can you go to John chapter 6 with me? We'll be starting at about verse 37. <clears throat> So in John chapter 6, verse 37, going through to about verse 40, <clears throat> we see Jesus having this argument with the Pharisees, and he's saying, you won't believe, despite all of the evidence I gave to you. He says, you won't believe. Uh, verse 36, he says, I said to you that you, uh, sorry, I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And in contrast to that, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, 
but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We see a few things in all of these different uh, verses. Go back to verse 37. First of all, what we see is that Jesus, all those who come, have been brought, we've seen in another verse in John 6, they only come because the Father brought him. And he says, all of those who does come to me, okay, all of those who the Father does give to me, is the divine side, every single one of them will, that he gives will come, that's the language of faith, and I will never cast them out. And that's not just a moment of speaking of Christ's heart at the moment of justification, as if you in your sins can ever come to Jesus and, and ask for forgiveness and he'll turn you away because you're just a couple of sins too filthy. You waited a few days too late. You're just, you're just too far away. He'll never say that. His heart is always open for sinners to come. But that doesn't change towards you when you're 10 years into your Christian life. That doesn't change 20 years down the track. It's not as if he was fully willing to openly receive anybody then, but now he might just cast you out. No, the same grace that justified us, the same grace that received us at the first, is the same grace that will never, ever cast us out. The verse 38 through 40 is glorious. He says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he, he's, sort of, he's taking it above just being the Messiah. He, I'm not talking at the moment about what the Messiah Jesus wants to do. I'm not saying what well, I've been sent and then God said, do what you want and I've devised this plan. I'm, I'm, I'm elevating it. I'm putting this to the sovereign will of the Father, the one who sent me, Jesus says. I'm here to do his will. And his will, he goes on to say, not here to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Right? You want to know God's will? Here it is. Do you want to know why God sent Jesus to the earth? This is it. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So we've seen that the, the will of God, and we talked about this at Limited Atonement, de- definite redemption, whatever we want to call it. The will of God in sending his son Jesus was not merely, oh darn, they're in such a, such a problem. I know, I'll send Jesus and what he'll do is he'll open up a door. Yeah, that's great. He'll, he'll open up a potential door that anybody by their own will can come into. That, that's what Jesus did. He came down to make a potential possible salvation for anybody. No. The will of him who sent him was that he would go, receive those he had given him, die for those that had been given him, and then not lose them until the last day, the last day of judgment. Until they're in glory, sealed for eternity, that's the will of God in sending Jesus. It was not simply God sent Jesus to die for us, but rather... God sent Jesus to die for a particular people and secure them on to the end. Do you realize that the ministry of Jesus as a mediator is still happening right now? That if he loses a single elect person in all of church history, maybe maybe it goes on for another 50,000 years, and if every one of God's chosen people are saved and secured till the end and Jesus loses one, then everything he has ever done from that point back to his incarnation is null and void and failed, and we do not have a mediator for he failed the task that God sent him to do. He's still undertaking what God sent him to do because it includes a persevering, protecting work. Jesus came, he owns us by his blood, he purchased us, and therefore it's in his own interest. It is his supreme pleasure to keep us. Verse 30, this is the, he just repeats himself. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him, and we might end it with, will be saved. But Jesus defines that salvation. It's not just a moment, not just that you're forgiven then and who knows what will happen later. He says not just that they will look on the Son and believe and be saved then, but he says they will look on the Son and believe in him and from that moment on they have eternal life. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the one holistic salvation. God didn't just save you then and we'll see what happens. His salvation is a from the moment you believed until eternity in glory salvation. It's a whole package deal from God's perspective. So Jesus must defend us because, uh, so we must persevere because Jesus owns us. It's him making sure that we will persevere. Look now at Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1, we have, and we've been here in previous weeks again, we have this awesome blessing towards God, this doxology for his election, predestination, his adoption, all of his glorious grace from one, uh, sorry, from verse 3 till verse 10. But look at verse 11. <coughs> in him we have, an, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Look at how future tense that is. We have an inheritance, which is something coming to us. Not just a salvation now, but in our salvation is a future promise of what we will inherit. And, and that inheritance was not made by somebody who crossed his fingers, but that inheritance was promised by him who controls and purposes every single thing that has ever happened or ever will happen. An atom in this universe has not budged outside of the sovereign decree of God. And that God controls what will happen in the future and therefore can make promises about what will happen to you. Verse 12. So that, we received an inheritance, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, in him, in Christ, you also, so he goes from the apostles and the Jews to the Gentiles, you, you Ephesians, you also, in him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, so, so there's the human side. You heard the word of truth preached, the gospel of salvation, and you believed. When that happened, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So in verse 13 and 14, what we see there is this, is, is multiple different layers of imagery that Paul loves to throw together. First of all, he says, when you believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. This is language in the ancient world, of course, it still happens today, that, that a, a royal summons might be made, or a royal letter was sent, or, or a royal contract had been signed, and it would be poured with wax as it was closed and sealed with the signet ring of the royal, or, or the family emblem, or whatever it may be, so that the person receiving it will know whether or not this letter has been opened. It's, it's sealed, no one can undo it except for the one either who wrote it or who is receiving it. It's a way of securing a message. If you seal something, it cannot be falsified, it cannot be undone. And we have, by the Holy Spirit, while, while you came into the, the, the salvation of Christ, maybe we think of the ark, you walked into the ark to be saved, but it was God, Genesis tells us, who closed that door behind them so that no one could leave. We are secure and safe in Christ because the Holy Spirit came in after us and seals us in Jesus. With the, with the divine signet ring, he places it upon us so that no one else can break it. So we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. But then he starts using deposit, financial language. I know that, that, that among us, not you guys, among other people, less responsible Christians, that people put down deposits that they don't end up following through on with the rest of the payments. Now, the whole, whole design of a deposit is this person's making a large purchase. Let's, and they're going to say they'll pay it off over years. Let's make them make an upfront large deposit, large sum payment, so that they can't in two weeks say, you know what, stuff this contract, don't want to pay it all off, and I've only made three payments of $50 anyway. I'm only losing $150. Rather, they'll say, oh, that's true, but also I made a 10 grand deposit right at the beginning so that, so that I'm only two weeks into this contract, but I would lose two years' worth of payments if I pull that now. Such is the design of deposit. Only fools 
make a deposit that they can't actually end up fully paying for. And maybe even liars would put down a deposit with no intention of fully paying the lot. Well, our God is neither a liar or a fool. Jesus says it's the fool who starts building and then realizes halfway through, I actually can't follow through with this. Well, God is not that God. So that the Spirit is a seal to us, but the Spirit is also a deposit. Now, we've spoken before about promises between Jesus and the Father, but now, now we're more talking about promises between Jesus and us. You may think that the most amazing thing you've ever experienced in your life is nearness and communion with the Holy Spirit as he leads you in the glories of obedience to Jesus. And you'd be right. It's the best thing you've ever experienced. But it's not the best thing that could ever be experienced. Because what Paul says, is, says here is that all of the glory of the Christian life that the Spirit brings, that's just a down payment. You got the 1%. The rest is yet to come. Sinlessness, eternal life, immutability, always growing in perfections, of seeing God face to face, that's the fullness. By the Holy Spirit, you have now only a down payment. So, so that's great to think about, but you see the promise embedded into it. If he is the down payment, he cannot be revoked from us. The Holy Spirit cannot be given to anybody and then taken away unless God breaks his promises like a fool who puts down a deposit and then doesn't have the funds to follow through or simply changes his mind. God is not that God. Read again verse 14. The Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. That guarantee could otherwise be a deposit. Who is a deposit of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, Jesus has purchased us and therefore it's in his own uh, 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 pleasure. It's on him to keep us. That's why we persevere. But secondly, we want to look at the fact that we persevere because Jesus defends us. So let's go now to John chapter 10, verse 27 through 30. We go back to this language of sheep and shepherd. Now, if a sheep could talk, and if a sheep ever talks to you, you need to go and get uh, sign yourself into some kind of asylum or sober up. But if a sheep was to ever talk to you and you were to ask it, hey, are you safe? You're here in this valley, but I can hear the wolves barking. I, I see cars driving past. There's all sorts of worms that could kill you. You're a pathetic sheep. You can die of anything. Are you safe? Now, if that sheep was to respond back and say, I don't know. In fact, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm too humble as to assume somebody else will look after me. I'm going to say that in and of myself, I'm not safe and therefore I have no security. I doubt my life every day. What you would need to say back to that sheep is a, is a word of rebuke. Because a sheep's safety does not depend on it. It depends on the shepherd that looks after it. A wife who doubts her own safety. Maybe she does it uh, genuinely. I mean, there can be good reasons to. Maybe a sheep has a good reason to doubt its faithless shepherd. But in a perfect world and in an ideal situation, if a wife is to doubt her own safety while she's holding on to the arms of her husband, is not to doubt her. She knows she can't beat up the guy on the street. She knows she can't overcome the thug that's walking around. But her lack of security actually reflects that she doesn't think her husband can either. Well, we don't have that kind of husband. And we don't have that kind of shepherd. Jesus says in John chapter 27, he's saying, I'm the shepherd, the sheep are those God gave to me. And look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. That's the effectual call. And I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. How silly is it just to put, how silly is it that the people want to speak of having eternal life but then losing eternal life? And then you can gain it again later if you have faith again. As if eternal life was anything but eternal. It's everlasting. The moment you get it, you can never perish from then on. That's what Jesus says. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. All we see here is this, this, this reality that you're going to persevere, that 
the confidence you can have, the security that you have, that you will on the final day be found just in Christ, be found safe, secure, eternal in Christ, your confidence is not based on you, you're the sheep. You have no grounds in and of yourself to be confident. I've seen the wolf, I've seen the, the devil, the prowling lion, you can't beat that. You know that. You know your own sin. You know how fickle you feel just in the morning because you get, you get sick and your emotions are crazy. You take the wrong uh, medicine or food or, or you don't sleep and you start doubting everything. You know how fickle we are, how strong our enemies are, their arguments, their, their worldviews. You know all of that, but your confidence is not based on you. Jesus doesn't say, they are my sheep, they hear me, they believe me, I give them eternal life and they would never dare walk away. It's what sheep do. Prone to wander, the hymn writer says. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Right? He, he says, I'm, I'm prone to walk away from the God that I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's what our shepherd does. He so loves us that he is the good shepherd that though we wander here and there, though we fail here and there, yet finally our security rests in Jesus that he's the good shepherd. And then he even puts it up a layer above that. He says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. There's not a wolf out there, not a lion out there, not a bear out there that I can't put on its back and tear its face off like David. Right? The, he said, the bears come at me. I've taken their heads off. The, the lions come out. I, I tear them to shreds because I'm a good shepherd and he was a little boy. Jesus is not a little boy. He's the fearful divine warrior riding on a horse with a massive sword and he loves shedding the blood of his enemies. That's it. He is able to defend us because he's a good shepherd. And yet he puts it even above that. He says, my hand cannot be beaten. My grip cannot be broken. Right? He's the, he's the father running through the house on fire with his hands around the wrists of his children. He doesn't say, hold on to my pinkies, kids. If you let go, cheaper grocery bills. No, he grabs them by the scruff of the neck or by the wrists and he runs with them. They may be unconscious by the time they're out of the door. It doesn't matter. Their dad's grip held on. So Jesus says, my grip can't be beaten and they are also, 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 also double, triple, cubit, however you want to put it, they're in my hand and they're in the Father's hand in a double-gripped eternal hold. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. And him and I are one. Beautiful picture. The reason we remain is because Jesus defends us. I, lo I love this. The same imagery is all coming up. 2 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> I haven't decided yet whether it's lame to have life verses. But if it wasn't lame to have a life verse, this would be one of my life verses. <clears throat> Not saying I would or I do, but if I did, if I could get a mug with a verse on it, it would be this. 2 Timothy chapter 4. He speaks in verse 17. But the Lord, in this big trial of his life, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. He looks back on this situation which almost made him to fall away, which almost made him to despair, and he says, no one else helped me. And he doesn't say, but I stood fast. Oh, I was pretty secure and strong in my faith. No, he says, but the Lord. Like, like, a, like Daniel in the den of lions. He said, Daniel didn't overcome those lions, but the Lord stood by me and rescued me from the lion's mouth. And he looks forward to the rest of his life, as perilous as he knew that it would be. As often as he would be tied up, put into a Roman prison, as, as, as surely as he knew he was going to have his head lopped off under the, the sovereign of the day, yet he says, verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. That's the confidence of a Christian. Let the Roman Empire stand before me and oppose me. It's Jesus who defends me and will rescue me from the lion's mouth. Romans 8, verse 33. Go, to, go back to Romans 8. <clears throat> in all of this, if we are saying that Jesus is a defender, in all of this we must assume the subtext is that we have enemies. People are coming for you. People want to tempt you. People want to sin with you. People want you to sin. 
People want you to fall away from Christ. The devil is against you. He's a prowling lion. The world is set squarely against anybody who names himself for Christ. And yet, Jesus defends. Romans 8 verse 33. I didn't even go there myself. Uh, Romans 8 verse 33 reads like this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who can condemn? Right? You've already been declared. The court ended and then the devil runs in with an accusation. Sorry, already done. We heard all the evidence we need to. They're just in Christ. Not hearing any more witnesses. You're justified. Verse 34. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus? The one who died. And more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So now he goes directly from your justification, which is securing Christ as a past reality, to your perseverance, which though yet unseen for us, is just as secure in the plan of God. If they cannot go back and undo the death of Christ, they cannot change the future which God has promised you will persevere through. The death of Christ which you are unified to by the Spirit and faith, secures an eternal reality of life. They can't unkill Christ. They can't put Christ back in the grave. They can't take away your eternal life. So now he talks about the intercession of Christ. He died, and now he's praying for us. That's what interceding means. Verse 35. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, and you promised that, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things yet to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else. If I left anything out, anything else in all of creation. Nothing in this order that we call, call the world, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He died and sealed your life with him by faith you were joined in that reality as God had always predestined to do if they can't unkill Jesus if they can't take him off the throne away from his prayer before the father they cannot touch your eternal life you have perseverance nothing though it's promised it will come your sins the attacks the accusations the trials the poverty and whatever else nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ we are secure because Jesus defends us. We are secure because Jesus purchased us. And we are secure now because Jesus prays for us. Go to Hebrews chapter 7. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to look down in uh, verse 21 to 25. says this. But this oath was made to a priest, sorry, this promise was made with a, to a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, and he quotes Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. To summarize that before we go further, basically he's saying that, uh, uh, that, that, that priests would have to, <clears throat> we'll see this in verse 23, priests were, were made priests by, by uh, anointing of God, but our priest, Jesus, was made so by an eternal, unchangeable, divine promise and oath. So that he quotes Psalm 110 and says, God said to Jesus as the mediator, you are a priest forever. I'll never look for another one. Never ask for a better sacrifice. Never ask for someone to make more compelling prayers. You're the priest forever, O divine King, Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God promised to him. Let's go on. Verse 22 then says, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. 
Well, a better covenant than what, you ask? A better covenant than the old covenant, which had human priests, which were never promised that they would be a priest forever. Look at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Hard to be a priest if you're buried. Verse 24, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So because Jesus has an indestructible, eternal life, forever perfect, at the right hand of God, God never needs to ask for another priest. He is the one priest forever, always showing forth in his scars and his wounds the emblems of his sacrifice, our eternal mediator of a better covenant. Verse 25, consequently, therefore, we just did theology, Jesus is eternal, made an atonement, is now at the Father's right hand, consequently, how does this affect your life? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. In the old covenant, if you knew a priest and you would get used to going to him, like your family GP in a small town, or you know your priest, you line up behind his butchering station to offer your lamb and you confess your sins and he prays over you, makes the sacrifice of atonement and he gets to know you and, and, and then he dies. He can't make sacrifices for you anymore. You have to go, stop going to him to say, can you please pray for me? I have sinned. My, my son is, 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 is walking away. I'm struggling. I'm, I'm tempted. I need you to pray for me, priest. And then he dies. You can't go to him anymore. Because start up a relationship with a new priest. Start telling him everything. Start getting to know him. Bring sacrifices to them. And he doesn't pray like the other guy. He's less puritanical, uses shorter words. You don't like him as much. You stop going to a priest when they're dead. Paul says, sorry, I think it was Paul who wrote Hebrews, says, because Jesus, your priest, made the sacrifice once that needed to be made and is now living ever at the right hand of God, he never stops praying for you. You always go to God through him. And if today you are still in your sins, you have the promise of God here that if you come to Jesus with faith, if you just come and say, all of my guilt, as, as horrible as it makes me feel, all of my sin, as dark as I realize it is, I, I just, that's all I have. I, I offer it to Jesus. That's my only hope. If you do that, Jesus promises with the promise of the Father, you will be saved. He can save to the uttermost, whoever you are. He can save you because he lives for that purpose, to bring sinners to his God. But the reason that he saves to the uttermost is because he continually prays to the Father. The reason you and I aren't saved and then lost a few days later is because like a priest from the Old Testament, he not only makes a sacrifice for us, he also goes and prays for us. The reason you keep on believing, the reason you keep on pressing into sanctification, the reason you confess your sin and walk in the light, the reason you keep on learning and growing in the word of the Lord, the reason you keep on forgiving others and being forgiven by others is because Jesus is pleading before the Father on his own basis that you would continually be given enough of the Spirit for each day's necessities. That's why. He's praying so you persevere. That means, Christian, it doesn't mean that we don't fall into sin. It doesn't mean you don't wound your conscience. It doesn't mean that you waste time and, and you waste fruitful years of your life in sin. It doesn't mean that no one falls back or backslides momentarily or for a portion of time. It doesn't mean that some of you have not had years where you've been, been out of a good Bible preaching church, but praise the Lord God, He brings you back to the fold and He secures you because He's the faithful shepherd. Amen? Amen. Murray McShane Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish preacher in the 1800s, he said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, imagine that, you get up to do your devotions in the morning, you're still nodding off, you feel guilty about stuff, and, and you just overhear somebody fervently sweating in prayer. You realize it's Jesus, and your name is on his lips, 
and he's mentioning your sins and your struggles and your t- the very things you were about to pray for and then all this stuff that you didn't even realize was behind the scenes. And you hear him begging the Father, give to him enough of the Holy Spirit. Give to her a portion of your grace for today to see them through to the pillow tonight. Take them, make them holy for I was holy, they shall be holy. You heard him praying, Robert Murray McShane said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies before me. He said, though I cannot hear him, yet he prays for me. We cannot hear him, But the word tells us he is praying for us. He says, distance makes no difference. He still prays for me. Christian, that means you're in a very safe place to confess your sin, talk about it to somebody, and fix up those areas of your life that you've not let God reform. It means you're in a very safe place, a place made safe and secure by the covenant of his own blood that he will not hear you confess something or or bring something to the table that he wasn't aware of and he's now going to cast you out. You are in a place so secure you are compelled. Bring your worst to the table. He will forgive it. He will cleanse you. He will walk you forwards in holiness. And sinner, that means you are offered now a permanent able saviour who knows what you've done and in fact knows what you will do. Charles Spurgeon is one of my, I love to read his sermons, he's one of the greatest preachers and soul winners that has ever blessed the English language. He was preaching in the 1800s and he wrote an autobiography and in that autobiography he wrote about his conversion. He said one of the the things that kept him from becoming a Christian when God was working in his heart and making him feel his own sin, the thing that was just holding him back from, from throwing himself, at least in the human sense of it, what was holding him back from believing in Christ and giving him his soul was, was that he had known Christians that were seemingly godly 50, 60, 70 years into their walk depart from Christ, become atheists, walk away, become drunkards, leave their families, become adulterers. And he said, I'm all, I'm all, I'm all, I'm all for this, this forgiveness thing as, as long as I can die straight after I'm saved. I'm all for this forgiveness of, of sins as long as, as long as I don't continue a while. And then, like every other person, I, I seem to see have, have the, the, the way of the world ingrained in me start to yank me away again. And he said, what about... What about three days? What about five years? What about 20 years? What about, what about 50 years? How can I possibly know what's going to happen to me then? I can't come to this Jesus. I'm told in Hebrews that if I come and then receive and walk away, I'm worse than the unbeliever and my, my guilt is even greater. My hell is hotter. I, I don't want that. He said what, what got him over the line, so to speak, and I'm, I'm speaking to the non-Christians among us now, I'm, what got him over the line as a teenager to finally just throw himself on Jesus was the realization of the promise in Scripture that if he brings you into salvation, he promises, he doesn't say, I've got a pretty good track record, I don't think you're all that bad, we'll be okay, one in 10,000 chances this surgery won't go well. He says, every person that has ever come to me by the will of the Father, every person that ever brought their sins to me has been kept secure and safe in the salvation till death brought them to my presence. When he understood that, he, he, he threw himself on Jesus and received this salvation. That's what I'm offering to you. A grace that promises future things. A grace that secures you for eternity. There's an old hymn and it has this line that I want to close out on tonight. It says, I'll read it lest I butcher it. It says, More happy but not more secure are the glorified spirits in heaven. Our loved ones who knew Jesus and have gone home, they're a lot happier than us. Amen? That... They don't have to put up with anything that we're putting up with. I'd love to be there. They are more happy than us. No one's so, so, so holy that you're going to say, no, I'm, I'm as happy now in the Lord Jesus as I'll ever be in eternity. No, we all know they're way happier than us. But do you know that they're no more justified? They're no more forgiven? They're no more adopted? And they are no more secure? You think that because they're through that final door, they're a bit more sealed. No, if you're in Christ, you are as secure, though not as happy, as those glorified saints in heaven.
You were sinful. Maybe you are sinning right now. Maybe you're still outside of Jesus. You were in the, you were in the, in the prison, in the jail. The, 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 your, your hands were, were bound fast by sin. Your flesh controlled everything you did. It was dark. It was manky. It was, it was dripping. It was filthy. Sewage was around you in the corners. The rat, rats were gnawing at your fingertips. And your bones were showing. You were infected. You were dying and, and really already sentenced to death. That was you. And Jesus came and freed you. You don't need a fear as if he's saying, I'll, I'll break you out of this place. Just, just don't get caught again. I've, I've spoken to people who've broken out of, of communist concentration camps. And, and the thing that got them going was, it's not once you're out of the barbed wire fence. It's not once you've buried underneath the surge tunnels that now you feel you're safe. Your whole life, until you get to another continent, you're afraid that the enemy, even more angrier now, is going to come and get you. That's not what Jesus does. He shines the prison cell with light. He raises you up, heals your soul, breaks the chains, puts you into his chariot and rides you into the eternal kingdom where nothing can take you. That's the salvation of Jesus. Can you stand with me as we pray to finish out this series and give all glory to God for his grace and his mercy in Jesus. Father God, we thank you for this salvation this study of salvation soteriology that secures us. If it does anything, Lord, let it make us secure that on our days of doubt, we're only doubting ourselves, that on our days of, of sin and weakness, that is, that is us coming to the forefront. But Lord, if we focus ourselves on Jesus, his salvation, his security, his purchase, his promises, his defense, his prayers, his intercession, his merit, his value, his warrior protecting spirit that loves his bride and will see every child come home. If we focus on that, we will be secured and Lord, we will be empowered. Willing not just to let enemies come at us, but we'll be willing to take ground for the Lord Jesus in proclaiming his gospel, in taking risks, in pushing forward, in, in going out as you call us to do. Lord, we stand firmly in your covenant. We live in the power of Christ. We live because he died, and now we live because he ever lives to make intercession for us. Save souls for yourself, Lord. Grow and, and build up and purify this church for your glory. And everybody who has been redeemed and trusts the promises of Jesus Christ said together, Amen. 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 Amen.